0: welcome to diner talks with james slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating what is going on my friends how are you welcome to another episode of diner talks with james i'm james You can tell it's the beginning of the episode because I have my podcasting voice on. How's everybody doing out there? Okay. (laughs) This will get turned off in a minute as my insecurities slowly dwindle away in the comfort of a casual conversation with a friend. But alas, I'm really excited about this episode. Victoria Alexander is my guest. Now, fun fact, she and I have never met in person, but I've always admired her work from afar. We've been in a couple of online spaces together. Uh, Apparently, she knows the cover of my book, so I'll take it. Uh, But (laughs) I'm super excited for you to get to know know her today, so we're going to bring her out here in just a second, but let me tell you about her. First off, she and I are both New Yorkers. That's important for you to know because New York is the greatest state in the union. Okay. Challenge me. All right. Challenge me. All right. (laughs) She also went to school in Boston. Boston's one of the worst cities in the union. Go Yankees. But still, the thing is, is that she is an incredible individual. She was a college athlete, and uh, that's impressive. She went to school, at graduate school at the University of Southern California, aka USC, uh, and she is now getting her doctorate at the University of Maryland. She spends a lot of her time in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. She is working on helping individuals own and recognize their identity, so they can know their place in the system that has been created. Uh, because we have to recognize what our power is that we have that has been given to us. Uh, she does a lot of work as in the anti-racist space, and I'm just really excited for you to get to know her today. So let's bring her out right now. The one, the only Victoria Alexander. What's up, friend? <laughs>
1: Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. That was a heck of an introduction.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, you know, I pride myself on being your hype person.
1: <laughs> I appreciate it. You could, I would definitely hire you to be a personal hype man.
0: I'll take it. I'll take it. I am uh, available for hire for most things. So, <laughs> Victoria, how is your day going today?
1: It's going well. It's Friday. Um, I don't work on Fridays uh, within my typical professional role. It's only uh, side hustle days on Friday. So it's been fun.
0: Side hustle day Friday. I like that. I like that. (laughs) Now, uh, you and I are both from New York. I'm from Long Island, New York. You're from Beacon, New York, which to your chagrin means that you live upstate. I don't know if you knew that.
1: (laughs) So like, technically, (laughs) technically, I do live above New York City. But as you know, New York is massive. massive. And I live in the bottom 8th of it
0: you do you do yeah, no, it's it's such a funny thing that I mean uh, New York City has, has such an ego about it uh, that mm-hmm. I think we both love a little bit secretly maybe publicly um, but uh, but yeah but it, as soon as you leave the Bronx uh, you're immediately in upstate New York even though you're maybe maybe 15 minutes away from the city yeah. Uh, yeah it's a it's a funny thing I lived in Ithaca for a little while which is actually upstate uh, <clears throat> that's right all the way up there all the way up now, since we are both New Yorkers as well, do you do you fancy yourself a diner meal?
1: Yes, I love yeah. diners. That was always like the thing to do, like late night, high school, early college. Go to the diner; they're open twenty four hours. They have baklava. It's a whole thing.
0: Oh, shoot. baklava! Is that the move? We do. We get a little oh, phyllo, yeah. a little honey, a little yeah.
1: Yep, absolutely. So my mom is Greek. She's American, but she's okay. Greek. And so we would always go to like the Greek festivals and had all the baklava and all of the heroes and all the goat and all that stuff, which was awesome, except for that the bees always came with the baklava. The but yeah. so every time I go to a diner, most of the diners around here are Greek. Uh, you have to get that. But my main meal for late night is French toast. <laughs> which I don't know if it makes sense. It's breakfast food, but breakfast or dinner or a midnight snack is always the go-to.
0: I think it makes complete sense. Sometimes if I'm feeling gluttonous at the diner, I'll level up my late night meal and I'll get the Monte Cristo, which is the French toast with a slice of ham, a slice of turkey, and a slice of Swiss cheese on it. Ooh. And uh, it's a pretty iconic sandwich. And here's the thing about the deli, the diners where we're from, they do the challah bread French toast, which is just yep. a whole nother, it's this beautiful yellow, uh, a traditionally Jewish loaf of bread uh, that makes by far the best French toast out there. Yes, can confirm. Can can confirm. So you have Greek heritage in you. Is that something that you, uh, is that something that shows up in your in your life in any way or mainly just in culinary pursuits?
1: Um, it's not super salient. So my mom is Greek and Italian, uh, Sicilian specifically, but she's third gen. So like, it's not super salient because my grandparents didn't grow up there. They grew up here. Uh, We don't speak the language. It's a part of the food that we eat and some of the ways that we practice Easter and Christmas. But other than that, it doesn't come up too much.
0: Got you. Got you. My parents are also, I believe, uh... I believe third generation. Uh, And, uh, but we did not go to like Italian festivals or Irish festivals or things like that. It really, uh, it only came up in the food that we ate. Now I've since started to go to Italian festivals because any chance to eat a zeppoli, I'm pretty much going to be there. Um, But, uh, 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 but yeah, and I love, uh, I mean, Greek food is, is outrageous. Um, It's just such, it's, it's so good. Uh, And uh, I mean, we put feta on pretty much everything right now in the house. Um so uh that's uh that's super fun. I did not know that about you. That's a fun fact.
1: Yeah I'm I like it. I think it's fun. I, I've been meaning to do like an ancestry.com to see exactly mm-hmm. where we're all from because my cousin got an, a Celtic knot tattoo. I'm like Monica, we're not Irish and she's like Mm, yes, we are, which is news <laughs> to me. Apparently, we're also a little Irish, so I definitely want to learn
0: more. Yeah, what else do you believe? Uh, what else do you believe and or know is in your uh, ancestral makeup?
1: So I know that my grandparents did twenty three and me my my father's grand my father's parents. So my okay. mom is white, and my dad's black. So my father's parents did it and learned that they're a little bit European as Mm -hmm. most American descendants of the enslaved are. Um, So I have hazel eyes and then a few of my brothers and sisters do. I have seven brothers and sisters. Um, (laughs) And so we learned (laughs) that there's a pretty significant somewhat amount of European ancestry bopping around in here. So I want to learn more about where in Africa we would have been from. Uh, we, the speculation is somewhere near Nigeria, mm. uh, but then also how many generations back can we find the names of our relatives? Uh, so that's what I'm really interested in.
0: That's super interesting. Yeah, I haven't, I have not done the 23 Me thing. Uh, I think it would be fascinating. I've always just kind of walked around saying I'm half Irish and half Italian. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, apparently there's a little speck of French in there, but I don't like to talk about it. All right. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> um, no, I just, but it would be fascinating to learn uh, some of that information for sure. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you uh, you have uh, a group of uh, a group of seven siblings, so that means you're there's eight of you total, which is a hell of a squad. Uh, <laughs> where do you fall in that lineup? I'm the oldest, the oldest of all eight of us. You're the oldest of all. Okay, okay. Now I'm curious. Being raised in such a large family, how does that uh, how does that impact who you are today?
1: I think it's made me really responsible and really cognizant of the uh, example I'm setting. I think Mm -hmm. I've always felt some sort of uh, pressure or incentivization to do well and to sort of figure stuff out so that my siblings can have a model. And my parents are great at that as well. Uh, But I think being closer to your sibling's age makes it a little bit more approachable. Mm -hmm. So it was very important to me to do well in school and do well at sports. And I was a Girl Scout for a really long time. And so I think that but in those examples of achievement was always really important to me and remains really important to me. Uh, and so I think being the oldest definitely instilled that in me early and I don't think it's going
0: anywhere. It's not going anywhere. I don't know how it could, uh, you've, that pattern has been woven into your whole fabric <laughs> for sure. Is, uh, I oftentimes think about the pressures that are on us and, and there's pressures that are put on us from externally, but also internally. Uh, do you find that what I just kind of heard you talk about is a little bit of pressure, not and pressure, isn't always bad, but the pressure to be that role model though, do you think that is coming more internally for you or has it been put on more externally?
1: Um, I don't know. Cause we're like a product of our experiences. So like probably a little bit of both, um, I think that achievement has always been very important to me. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I was always really excited about like my midterm report and my report card and like parent-teacher conferences. I just like wanted to hear that I was doing a good job, and I still need that. Like, words of affirmation is my love language. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's definitely maintained itself. Uh, and I'm a PhD student, so like I'm a a little bit of an overachiever. I didn't have to do this, uh, but I really appreciate the uh, sort of immediate gratification that the academic sphere uh, provides in terms of like grading and feedback. Um, And so I enjoy that a lot. I also grew up an athlete where like success is just at the end of the competition and either you get it or you don't. And if you don't, you keep working towards it.
0: Mm. Success is at the end of the competition and either you get it or you don't. That is a weight, my friend. Uh, (laughs) that's that's what we call that in the business uh but it's also i mean there's there's a lot there's, there's a decent amount of truth in it too um but what uh, holding ourselves to such high standards is 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 sometimes fatiguing and i'd be mm-hmm. curious like for you are where have you where what where, where does grace play in your life or are you like I'll have grace when I'm dead, right? Like, you know, like I got to keep pushing right now. Uh, I got to keep setting the example. I got to keep doing the things uh, and, and, and waving the flag.
1: I really don't know when I'll find it. I'll 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 keep you in the loop, but I think yeah. I, I set these. New DM.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll send sign your DMs when I find Grace. Um, <laughs> I set these sort of expectations for myself of like, I just wanna uh, get this role, or I just wanna get this master's degree, or I just wanna get this PhD, or I just wanna get this tenure track position. But after I achieved that, I always had something new. Like I've never yeah. been satisfied really. I've been proud of myself, but there's always been something else I've wanted after I've achieved something. Mm-hmm. Um, so will I find rest maybe one day? Uh, but I think right now I already have sort of like a 10 year plan and in 10 years will come smaller me's uh, hopefully. So I'm sure <laughs> my my benchmarks will just change, but they'll still be there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, smaller me's. I like that. <laughs> you know, this is something where you and I are actually a little bit similar. I care, and I've talked about it on here before, I care a lot about legacy, right? Mm-hmm. Legacy matters a lot. And and also, uh, what will be said about me when I'm gone. And that's not just when I leave this earth, it's also about like, when I leave this room, right? Like, <laughs> like, there will be part of me that will want to call you tomorrow and be like, was yesterday? Okay. How was it? We good? We good? Best interview ever had? Worst interview? Ever. It was the worst one. Got it. Okay. Right. Like, you know, it's that moment of uh, what, what impact am I creating right now is something that is constantly on my brain so much so that it sometimes takes me away from being in the moment. And being truly present because I'm always on to the next one, right? Like Jay Z and Swiss Beats, let's get it. Um, and mm-hmm. so, so for you, have you found the ability to, and if you have, how to be present from time to time?
1: I think it definitely takes a lot of energy sometimes for me to be present, um, especially because I'm always thinking about like what's the next step, like what's the next stepping stone, like what needs to happen. Uh, and I was talking with my dad years ago at this point. But he my dad is a middle school principal. So he's like top of the ladder of the school that he works at. And he's like, Oh, I think I'm going to get my PhD soon. I want to be a superintendent. And I was like, Oh, okay, like, why aren't you like, you're not happy with being principal. I, I just always felt like you felt very fulfilled in that. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not capable of, of doing something without feeling the need to take it over. And I was like, oh, I, I am your child. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> I see. I, I see where I get this from now. Uh, but I think sometimes I do that too, even in like being an athlete or in being a student, a uh, student leader. Like I wanted to be on executive board. I wanted to be on the uh, fastest all time list. Like I always want to do the most. And sometimes that's at my own detriment because you can't do too much all of the time. Uh, But I do really enjoy making the most out of my situation. So when I was in high school, that looked like doing the absolute most so I could get into college. Mm -hmm. When I got to college, it looked like doing the absolute most because I was on a full ride and I wanted to make sure that I was milking that full ride for all it was worth. And then I decided to go to grad school and it's just really never stopped. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. Uh, no, no. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, you know, your resume is on your, on your website and you list your GPA and clearly you did fine. Uh, right. Like it's, uh, it's, there's part of me that's like, Oh, that's a. Full point higher than mine, uh, which I'm not bragging about my mediocrity right now. Please know that Victoria, uh, but still, it is. Uh, it's very evident in your work, right? Like you just said, uh, it's not. I'm going to be an athlete. I'm going to be on a team. It's. I'm going to be a D1 athlete, right? <clears throat> um, and it's not that I'm just going to be on the team. I'm going to break a record. I'm not just going to be in a in a sorority. I'm going to be in the executive board. No, actually, I'm going to be a leadership consultant, which is only given to. To 10, 12 people at most, right? Maybe eight, right? Out of, I don't know, 10,000 members or something like that. Give or take the size of the organization. You're like, I'm going to be one of those 10 or 12, right? And it's, uh, I'm not just going to go to Joe Schmo graduate school down the block. I'm getting into USC. Don't believe me? Just watch. And I'm not going to get this, get this master. I'm going to get this doctorate, right? And like, and uh, it's it's evident in the way that you sh- that you show up. And so I'm wondering we all hit breaking points from time to time, right? Those moments where we're just like, Oh my God. Like I just like, it just it, it, peak, peak stress, peak, uh, what a uh, fatigue peak, whatever it is. Um, what does it look like when you occasionally hit a moment like that? Or is that something else you're gonna have to DM me about in the future?
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, it definitely happens. Right. So like, I do work in race and racism, which gets quite heavy quite frequently. So over the summer that looked like taking a day or two to not engage on social media, to like not talk with folks. to just kind of like chill and be without the weight of all of that. Um, But then I usually bounce back fairly quickly and do whatever I feel called to do to make myself feel better. So sometimes that's, cleaning my apartment. Sometimes that's writing an article and how I feel about it. Sometimes that's going to a spin class, mm-hmm. uh, whatever that looks like. It typically doesn't last more than like a couple days, my reprieve, but yeah, every once right. in a while you kind of gotta.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, that is something that I've never built into my schedule and said, I just run into the wall and then fall over and that's where I rest. <laughs> and then I get back up a day or two later and keep going. I, I admire the individuals that have built systems for themselves to have a rest day in there, right? It's kind of like when you work out, you're not supposed to go hard seven days a week. You're supposed to have a rest day. It's almost just as important as the days that you're working out. Uh, and uh, But that's that's not often how I approach my business or my life or relationships. And so I, uh, yeah, so it's, it's cool to talk to somebody else who, It sounds like they have a similar mindset a little bit.
1: Yeah. I get questions a lot from students of like, how do you manage self-care? And my answer is usually like, don't look at me for a model on how to do that because (laughs) I don't do it incredibly well. I do it when my body requires me to do it. But otherwise, I I think I'm struggling somewhere between like, I need to feel maxed out to feel at all productive. And that's not great, but I'm working on it.
0: Yeah, yeah over here in camp, do as I say, um, <laughs> <laughs> flipping off camp, do as I do. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I love it. Here's a fun fact that I don't know if you knew about you and I, but you and I both went to schools in the uh, Colonial Athletic Association. You went to Northeastern. I went to the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, uh, the campus that you probably enjoy traveling to the most because it's beautiful in down South. Um, but uh, <laughs> uh, But as an athlete, uh, as an athlete, you were a runner. What what uh, what events did you run?
1: In college, I ran the 60, the 100, the 200, and then I reluctantly was put in the 4x4.
0: <laughs> was that like at the end of your college career where it's like, it's like, ah, well, they're getting old, put them in the 4x4. Like what, what happened there? Why reluctantly?
1: So I run the short sprint. So oh. For, for anyone listening who doesn't know how long those events are, the 55 is – or the 60 takes about seven seconds to run. The 400 <laughs> is a whole lap around a full-size track. It takes maybe a minute or less. Yeah. And so that distance is big. <laughs> uh, and so I was really good at running the absolute shortest races, mm-hmm. and the 400 is just about the longest race that you can run and still be considered a sprinter. I'm also only – five feet, five inches tall. And most 400 runners have quite long legs. I'm built like a donkey. I don't, I don't have <laughs> that. Um, and so I wasn't in the four by four in like the first year or so of my college career, because I frankly was not that good at it. And they take the four people who are the best at it and put them in it. I was a like stand in like a second banana. If someone was hurt, I'd have to run it. So it was uh new England's of my second or third year of running. And I'm done for the day. I go over to my coach and I'm like, hey, I'm good, right? Everyone's good to run the four. I can go eat my my lunch now. She's like, yeah, we're good. Everyone's fine. Uh, So I start going to town on my meatball sub. My roommate on the team runs up to me and she's like, somebody got hurt. You have to run the four by four. And I was like, oh, I'm going to throw oh, up no. like that's
0: <laughs> this oh, is gonna no. be
1: terrible but it's new england's and it's either we win the four by four and we win new england's or we come in anything but first and Yukon wins new england's and we're right. like absolutely not so right. i get the Nothing I'm second leg.
0: At a stores, connecticut
1: <laughs> <laughs> only one husky should win new england's and it's the northeastern huskies so i get the baton i'm the second leg and I'm running, and we're doing fine. And someone passes me. And in my head, I'm like, well, that's about right. I'm not good at this. <laughs> and then around like the last 100 meters or so, I'm like, actually, I feel fine. I think I'll just sprint now and just took off. And I uh, did really well. And I handed off in first and we ended up winning the four by four. And my coach comes over to me And we're all like crying. We've won New England. And she's like, You just beat your personal best by about three seconds. And I'm like, That's pretty significant because a sprint is so short. And she's like, Congratulations, you're on the four by four now. And I was angry that I had done well and I proved that I could do it. And now I had to be on the four by four. So that's how I got on. I didn't, I did not want to be. It's too far.
0: Yeah. You know, I I feel like we're not giving enough credit to the unsung hero of this story. No offense, Victoria, but I think we need to talk about the meatball sandwich. You know what I mean? (laughs) I just, I think, I think it played a vital role and I hope it became a tradition for you.
1: (laughs) It may have. It may have pushed me to the finish.
0: (laughs) It's just something, it's always something to be said about a good good meatball. So (laughs) Uh, I love that. I love that. So, you know, I want to go back to the idea that you had. This uh, not the idea, the fact that you have a huge family. You do a lot of work uh, in racism, in uh, in racial identities, and in and 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 in helping individuals with their own identity work and the important work that comes in uh, in there. In such a big family, I would assume that you all are not all on the same exact page with what it means to have this shared identity um, and how it shows up and how you live it right? Like I know even in my family uh, we're all incredibly white. Uh, but it's funny because some of my brother I have, th- I have two, two brothers and and I feel like the other two uh, Johnny and, and Brian care a lot about our Irish half and I'm like, no, the Italian half, right? Um, and so I'm wondering within within your family, does your work resonate with everyone or are, are you kind of, are you teaching within your family or I'd just be curious to hear, you know, from the, from the familial side, uh, how has uh, your work shown up and, and how, and how does your family, I guess, respond to it?
1: Sure. Uh, so I definitely wouldn't say that I'm teaching my family. I think that my family's always been very committed, uh, to combating racism and to talking about identity. Um, I would say all of the kids who are old enough all have a very similar identity. So we're Mm -hmm. all biracial. Um, Our mom's white and our dad's black. And we all identify as black and as biracial. Uh, We don't identify as white. Hypodescendence is like a whole thing about racial categorization, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we all identify as black. Uh, And then the difference is though, we're very different in age. So the littlest one of us is 20 years younger than me. Mm. So she, I'm not going to tell you my age, but she's little. Um,
0: <laughs> we only get some of the facts here on Diner Talks and that's okay.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm very protective of my age because people ask all the time and I'm like, why do you want to know? Yep. Um, but she's little. And so the younger ones are all Uh, they're not adults yet, they're still kids. Uh, So they might not have as salient of an identity because they just might not have explored it yet. But those of us who are adults are all like very vocally committed to Blackness. So, like, my little sister's in college and she's uh, studying race and racism, and she's joining uh, Black student organizations, and most of her friends are black, and that's just like what that's looked like for her. Uh, so that, like, group commitment has always been there. As I have researched race and racism, I've thought more deeply about my trajectory and identity, mm. and I remember growing up in about. Middle school area when everybody kind of has an identity crisis. Uh, I had come from an elementary school that was predominantly white because of like where my house is, my parents' house is. And then my school district, though, was predominantly black and Latinx. So I went to school and was like, this is awesome. Look at all these people that look like me. Like, this is going to be great. And that was good for about two years. And then in eighth grade, when the honors track started, suddenly it's just me and Nicole down the street are the only two black girls in any of the honors classes. And it's not a predominantly black and Latinx space anymore. It's predominantly white now. And that it stayed that way all throughout high school. And so that was very jarring to me because I never felt smarter than any of my peers who weren't in the honors classes. I just recognized that they were being uh, not as poured into as I was. And that never sat right with me. So when I went to college, I thought more deeply about that as well because I went to undergrad at a predominantly white institution. The black population is fewer than like four or so percent, so there weren't a lot of us. I was on the track team, so most of my teammates were black, uh, but my the general school population didn't represent me. So I had a few kind of moments of checking in with myself and saying like, something doesn't feel right here, but I don't know exactly what it is. Uh, Then in grad school, learning about racial identity development, I'm reading these books and I was like, everyone felt this way? Nobody told me. Everyone felt a little (laughs) weird about this? Oh, okay, this is normal. This is fine. Uh, But it took until I was like 26 for me to realize that feeling that way, unfortunately, is quite normal.
0: Yeah, what a journey. What a journey. (laughs) (laughs) So when would you say... uh, First off, you 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 just said a lot in a, in a in a really rich rich way, and so I want to go back to some of it. Um, you, you talked first about how. Uh, like your older siblings, uh, the ones who are on the older side, and your your side of the spectrum, that they get it, they're involved um, in different areas, aspects, and and that's uh, and that's awesome. That also that your your parents were like, no, this is going to be a part of our dialogue, right? Like we're going to talk about this. There's going to be pride here, um, and uh, and and there's work to be done, and we're going to do it. And so I love that. Um, and then in, in talking about your middle school experience. And that was, that was the, the time where you went to a, a middle school that was predominantly, you said a black and uh, black and Latin X, correct? Yes. Yeah. Is that, I guess, when were you, there's a difference between looking in the mirror and saying, I'm this color and, 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 and looking in the mirror and saying, I am black, I am biracial. I am black. uh when did you first say that and 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 knew what it meant and 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 it meant something to you was that was that super early was that middle school or was that even later
1: uh it was way earlier than that so i had my first conversation about race when i was about three i don't know if i have this memory or if i just remember my parents telling me the story of this happening uh but when I was about three, I was like in the bathtub, like doing tubby time, like dad's in there, we're hanging out or he's like pointing at stuff. And I'm saying the colors of the things. Uh, so I guess I would have had to have been about three to know colors. I don't know much about child uh, learning, but <laughs> let's place me at three.
0: We'll get some minutes uh, later. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and so he's pointing out the bath mat and he's like, Tori, we well, like, what color is the bath mat? I'm like, it's blue. And he points at the soap and he's like, Tori, what color is the soap? And in my head now, I'm like, we only ever buy Irish spring. It's still Irish spring right now. It's always green. So he points at the sink and he's like, what color is the sink? And I'm like, the sink is white, like mommy and me. And so I knew what race was at three, but I didn't know Mm. what it meant for me or my biracial uh, existence and interracial family. So Tommy time's over and I get scooped up. We go to the living room and my parents do the like hand thing where they're like, daddy is this and mommy is this and you are this. And so they taught me then that I was biracial and that I was black. And then I remember, Going to school, my parents would say, like, when you fill out a form, make sure you check black. And I was like, all right, that's cool, whatever. Uh, and then I always did that. And then back then, you couldn't select all that apply. You could choose other if you wanted to and explain it. But I always just check black. Yeah. My brother, however, is four years younger than me. And he comes home one day. And my mom's like, hey, I noticed that you checked other. Like, what's up with that? And he was like, well, I feel he's like five at this point, And he's like, well, I feel like if I just check black, I'm saying that you don't exist, which was heartbreaking, right? For my little brother wow. to be like, I, I don't want to pretend like my mom's not white. Uh, around the year 2000 was the first time that the select all that apply option existed. I still don't use that, but it's an option. Uh, so it was always taught to me through my parents that we should be very proud of being black and we should be very proud of our family and our heritage and the way that we look and the texture of our hair and all those sorts of things. Uh, And my mom always made a concerted effort to socialize me with other black children, uh, which is easy to do when you're from my part of New York, and most people are black. Uh, But that was always something that was very important, uh, especially being biracial and being, I don't consider myself white passing, but I'm certainly more white passing than a darker skinned person. Uh, And so I think that that was really important towards creating a healthy and holistic racial identity for me.
0: Yeah. There's a a well known microaggression that I would imagine you have heard a lot, uh, and that is when somebody asks you, "What are you?" Mm. <laughs> Do you get that pretty frequently?
1: Oh my goodness! Living in Boston, going to bars in Boston, all the time, all yeah. of the time. That's like the number <laughs> one pickup line that, frankly, white men use in Boston for anybody yeah, who looks at creative. all racially we're a
0: ambiguous. Group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Just patterns,
0: just patterns. <laughs> uh yeah, I, I I can only imagine. Yeah. Um, and what and um, what an insulting question though, uh, for sure. And just uh yeah. Uh so in in your development, there is a moment where you are where you it's like I am this, and then there's a moment where you fall in love with this. Um, and have you fallen in love? When did you fall in love? With your blackness
1: um it was something i always knew about myself and valued for my entire life i think i became much more committed to it um probably in college so i mentioned in college i was on the track team Mm -hmm. and so the majority of the people i spent every single day with were black women um, and so I was very committed to that group, one, because we were a team and two, because we were a small group of people in a predominantly white space. Um, so then was definitely a, a point of group commitment for me. And then in college in 2014 was when Black Lives Matter started. And so within my team environment, I felt very well represented and very understood but devoid of my team environment, so in my classes, in my student organizations, in my sorority, I was represented in some ways, but not nearly as much as when I was with my team. So Black Lives Matter started, I realized pretty early into it that my peers who aren't Black have no idea how to talk about or how to understand racism. Yeah. The vast majority don't know how to talk about or understand Classism. Northeastern is a uh, expensive school. Yeah. And so yeah. it lends itself to a, a certain more affluent demographic sometimes, which I'm not a part of. So Black Lives Matter starts. I have one experience that really stuck out to me in which my roommates, two of them were white and one of them is black. Um, they still are those things. They're still alive. And uh, we we are getting ready for a protest because the murderer of Eric Garner was not going to be held accountable. And me and my roommate who is black are sitting on the floor of the dorm room. And we're like making our posters to go to the protest and our two white roommates leave the room. And we just kind of assume, you know, it's winter in Boston. They're going to get their coats. Uh, so we're like, all right, ladies, jack it up. We're getting ready to go. And, uh, that the two white roommates of ours come out and line up in front of us and have clearly like rehearsed a speech and are about to present it to
0: us.
1: (laughs) And uh, they say a few things, but verbatim, they say this protest is going to be about race and we don't want to go because we're white. And so me and my black roommate are obviously devastated. Like these are two of our closest friends. They love us. They care about us, but we hadn't realized that they had othered us in pretty specific ways. They had said, these are my friends and these people are black but they're not black the way that these other people that I don't know are black. These other people mm-hmm. that don't go to my school. They're not my friends. I don't know them. Yeah. Um, and so we're, we're pleading with them and we're saying, you know, no, an American man was killed by the police and the police are supposed to protect us. Like that doesn't make you upset. And they're like, yeah, of course it makes us upset, but we're not going. And we had a few other discussions very similar to that throughout the course of the next few months uh the next year beyonce performed at the super bowl uh big day but uh she she dressed as a black panther when she performed uh formation Mm -hmm. which i thought was badass but some of my white friends did not enjoy that and so then we have to have conversations around well Why would Beyonce make me feel guilty for being white? It's not my fault I'm white. What does she know about discrimination? She's rich. And then, you know, we have to have conversations around, sure, she's rich but she hasn't been rich her entire life. And she's also black every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and also, if you feel guilty (laughs) about being white, that sounds like a you thing, not like a Beyonce thing. Uh, But so there were a few conversations in which I realized my white friends don't know what it feels like to be me. And I don't know if they're going to. And some of them didn't. Some of them are no longer my friends because they couldn't get on board. Maybe they have now, maybe they haven't, I'm not really sure. I saw one of them posted the black box over the summer and hasn't said anything else. So I think she's gone for good. But most of them did come around in some way. And so I think that that's really informed the way I approach education about identity is that unless you are affected by something, you are unlikely to be fully informed on how to help it or how to benefit that group or how to correct your implicit biases or your internalized racism. Uh, And through that experience, I've been able to see a lot of my friends grow and improve in ways I wasn't certain that they would be able to, but they've really proved themselves. And I'm glad that our relationship has maintained itself. Um, But yes, I would say that that time around middle college was when it really clicked for me that I affirm my blackness. I always have, but it means something different within this context at this time in American history and at this time in my life. And I want to do more to make it so black students who come after me don't have to experience the pain of not being understood by non-black peers in the way that, I and my other black peers had to then.
0: Yeah. First off, you just dropped half a Ted talk, so thank you. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, But seriously, thank you uh, for, for, I mean, it's a a gift to get to to know somebody's story the way you just shared it. And so thank you for that. And uh, through some of those trials and tribulations, An interesting through line was friendship uh, in there. And where where did friendship come up and friendship on the track team versus friendship in a sorority versus friendship here? And what does friendship mean? And I used a really powerful word there kind of towards the end where you said prove, right, where these people have now proved um, that, I guess, is it proved that they're – that they see you prove that they love you prove that they will fight for you that they will advocate for you prove that they have done the work themselves. Like when, when you say prove, what, what does that mean? That's a powerful word.
1: I think it's all of those things. I think it's uh, putting effort towards showing me that they care about people that look like me, that aren't me. Um, I think that I've been told at various points in my life by various people of like, Oh, yeah, you're Black and I know that, but like, I don't think of you that way. Or you don't seem Black or you don't act Black or whatever that means, because people all tend to have a very rigid, narrow, stereotypical, and frankly, offensive view of what a Black person should look like or talk like or act like or care about. Yeah. Um, and sometimes within the context of a predominantly white institution, we don't look or act or feel that way. That's a very rigid understanding that like thousands of people, millions of people deviate from because blackness doesn't just show up one way, like we're not a monolith. Um, And so for a lot of my friends, it did require some sort of example that they didn't think that way, that they would stand up for me if necessary, that they would notice that my experience is not their experience and they're gonna have to go to bat for me sometimes. They're gonna have to consider that They're going to they're going to encounter situations in which they may not have noticed that I might be uncomfortable or offended Mm. because that's not their experience. And they're going to have to stand up for me like friends do. Uh, But it requires them to kind of look at it through a different lens. And some of my friends were not equipped to do that. And they had to go. We're not friends anymore. Some of them.
0: Y'all got to go.
1: (laughs) Yeah, they had to get out. (laughs) Some of them uh, did. Rise to the occasion and yeah. stand up for me if necessary. Um, I wasn't always the the person that stood up against every microaggression and let people know when they offended me, because I think when I was younger, I cared much more about being liked and having friends and like making people happy and not wanting to like rustle feathers mm-hmm. that I wasn't gonna stand up against everything that bothered me. If it affected me or if it affected other people. Now that I'm an adult, like if you microaggress me, you can kick rocks. But When you're young, right, you just want to be seen and affirmed and you want to have friends and you want to be popular or whatever that looks like. Uh, And so a few of my friends did stand up for me in ways that I wasn't yet ready to do. Uh, So, yes, there was some level of proving it, uh, because if you remain neutral while I'm experiencing harm, then we're not really friends.
0: Yeah. I love, that. Uh, I love that. I love that. I appreciate the way that you put it. I think that uh, oftentimes as someone who is a, a person with a lot of privilege, and I hear that I have to prove something uh, that that's, that's a word that sometimes feels uh, a little bit, it feels a little weird, right? To be honest with you, because it's kind of like, okay, so I'm not, I'm not good enough for you. Right. Um, right. I got to prove myself to you, but it, when you back out and you take yourself out of it your ego out of it and you zoom out at the world right or even your community you begin to see why that matters um and that wasn't always that wasn't always the easiest process for me right like i think you know as as i uh, worked to be an ally. And I can't, I, I will not describe myself as an ally. I think I can, that's only a title that someone else can give me. Um, but uh, as, as I try to do the steps to hopefully be seen as one, um, it, it, uh, there were moments during that journey where I was like, see, look what I'm doing. No, look over here, and look. Look at this post. Was my post really good? did I say the right thing, or hey, look how I stood up to this person, or I told this person, "We're not going to talk like that here," um, right? And like I had some of those moments, and, and then I was like immediately turned to uh, a person of difference, and and say, uh, I, I turn to a black friend, or turn to a, a uh, someone who identified in the LGBT population, be like, "Did I do good?" Right? Almost like a little kid, like pulling on their mom's coat, like, "Mom, did you see what I?" did right and and that was a part of my journey uh, for sure and uh and, and so there are some of those moments where we think about proving uh and where it it's a complex word but I get it and we have to take ourselves out of it to see the bigger picture of why that really matters and and I think you put it really beautifully i think that uh really what you started to describe is something that we don't often uh, I guess we don't often think about or separate the two, which is the difference between being an advocate and being an ally, right? I think adv- all I think all advocates are allies, but not all allies are advocates, right? And because there's a there's an action to advocating for someone. There's a sticking your neck out. There's a uh, I'm going to put myself into an uncomfortable position as opposed to just standing back and being like, I love you. I'm here. I'm here for you if you need anything. But go ahead. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Um, And and so, uh, yeah, I think I think there's a difference between those two. Have you noticed a difference between those two? And I'm curious, you know, how do you how do you often speak about them? Sure.
1: So I'm very particular with how I use Ally. I use Ally in the way that you use Advocate, but I'm not just giving that to anybody like it. (laughs) And I'm thinking a lot about the difference I'm noticing between people conceptualizing what is non-racist behavior and what is anti-racist behavior. Mm, So when I'm talking to my friends, I recently (laughs) had a conversation, uh, not that recently because I'm spoken for now, but before I had a a partner, I was talking with my friends about dating because I was on the apps and like the single life was for the birds. I was pretty over it. And I was talking with my friends about how, if someone said that they were uh, moderate on their profile, they got a left swipe. I'm all set with moderation. I don't need it. And my friends would say some of them, you know, like, "Oh, you don't know, like they could be really nice." And I'm like, "No, no, 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 no." I want an anti-racist, anti-capitalist, like pretty leftist person. Like I'm I have no interest in in moderation at whatsoever. Because if a person is going to date me, a person who experiences racism and sexism and classism, those are the top three. Um, They're going to have to be quite vocal in combating those systems of oppression. And if they're not, I don't want it. If they're not going to go to bat for me, I'm not interested. And if they're not prepared to do that, if they require additional coaching to do that, I'm too old for that. I'm good. I don't need that. I don't need to make a person. Mm. And so I think about that in my uh, platonic relationships as well of like, I would really like if the people in my life were prepared to fight against systems of oppression. And you need to do that through your consistent and arduous action to be able, I think, to fully uh, respect a relationship with me that is equal uh, and that is uh, a relationship that requires effort. And that's not to say that a relationship with me needs to be Laborious, uh, but there does need to be some sort of effort to understand that I'm facing things that I don't have control over, and I'm going to need some specific attention if the person I'm talking to does not face those things.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can totally see that, and 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 I get it, right? I mean, especially on the apps, everybody is—I mean, everybody wants everybody to find love. Just just stick it out. Just do a few dates, right? But you got to know what you want, right? Like, you didn't, (laughs) you settling for somebody would literally be the opposite of everything we talked about for the first 20 minutes of this podcast, right? Like <laughs> right? the idea of like, no, this is I'm achieving. Okay. I'm not settling. Um, and I'm not, uh, yeah. And so, uh, that would be the antithesis of who you are at your core. Um, not just because of the work that you do, but because of the human that you are. And, uh, and, and so, uh, I, I love that story, but I think there's, there's a, there's a lot of dating lessons that you also just shared, whether you wanted to or not, that, more people could certainly listen to, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's just like, no, this is this is what I want. This is this is what I need. And uh, and, and so, yeah, I think there is there's a lot of value in, in what you just shared. And and I I agree with you. I think sometimes there's some semantics work, advocate, ally, and whatnot. So I appreciate the pushback uh, that you gave to that of like, here's how I define ally. And uh, and I, I love that you push back a little bit on that. Thank you. And you also brought up this topic of uh, of anti racism. Mm-hmm. Now, I have uh, I've been doing I've been doing work in the diversity equity and inclusion space pretty much since graduate school. I, uh, I I I famously learned that I was white when I was nineteen. Right now we had mirrors in the house, Victoria. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> um, but uh, but like I learned at nineteen why it mattered that I was white or what it meant to be white. Um, and so, uh, and then I, I spent a lot of time doing education. And, and fortunately, the, as a student leader, there were a number of trainings that I was going through and and really appreciated it and did some outside work as well in graduate school, dove even deeper into it uh, and and whatnot. And so uh, I mentioned all this, not to credential myself. I mentioned all this because I feel like <laughs> though I've been in the space for, for a minute, um, though I've been in the space for a minute, I feel like anti-racist is a 2019, 2020 term. Has that term been around for a long time and I just have been under a rock or has it just gotten a lot more shine lately? Um, where, tell me a little bit more about, and also if you could please just let us know what is an anti-racist for the people in the back?
1: Sure. So the, term anti-racist has been around for quite some time. Um, I've been able to find it uh, through Angela Davis. So around the 1970s. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes my brain places her in the civil rights movement and I'm like, no, no, no. She was like 10 during the civil rights movement. Uh, So 1970s around, around that time. Um, And so Angela Davis has a quote, and I'm probably paraphrasing here where she says like, in a racist society, uh, we can't simply be not racist, we have to be anti racist. So Mm. racism is a system that will continue to function, whether or not we are actively acting upon it, whether or not we are thinking about it, it exists. And that's part of the danger of it is that it operates in silence, it operates whether or not we are actively contributing to it. Mm. Uh, And so Anti-racism, there's a few different definitions floating around, but I think that anti-racism has become such a popular buzzword right now, uh, largely because of the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram Kendi. Mm -hmm. um, And because Black Lives Matter in 2020 uh, didn't start now, but has been very popular in the past year or so. uh, because people really paid attention to uh, George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and various other black people that were killed at the hands of police brutality or through extrajudicial means. Um, And so that word I think is sometimes misunderstood because some people will say like, well, I'm not racist. And it's like, well, you might be right. And that would be great, but I don't know that. Uh, And (laughs) if you're, neutral about racism if you don't act upon it you're still allowing it to continue right so like if you have an understanding that racism exists but you're not doing anything about it you are signaling to me that like you're chill with it like it's yeah. fine i don't really care uh but if you're anti-racist that requires consistent and arduous action to combat racism and where i think a lot of people get sort of like foggy on that is they're like, well, I'm doing the work. I just read me and white supremacy last week. And it's like, well, that's great. I'm glad that you are adding to your educational foundation of your understanding of these issues, but it's about system level change. Like, yes, I care about your personal education. Yes, I care about your interpersonal relationships, but racism is a systemic problem and thus needs systemic change to change it. And I think the thing about that is that racism has been so prevalent in the U.S. since before the U.S. was the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so diversifying oppressive systems are still oppressive systems. Adding people of color to an organization, that organization might still be as racist and sexist and homophobic as transphobic as it ever was. It's just now introducing diverse groups of people into that shared trauma. Uh, And so changing the system of racism requires coming up with a solution that we've not seen before. And I think specifically in American society, we tend to hearken back to nostalgia and traditionalism. And we can't do that in this sense because it just wouldn't be successful. The only Uh, example that we may have of that would be the brief period of Reconstruction that had more uh, Black freedoms. But even that was swallowed up by Jim Crow in a lot of ways. Uh, And even that still had some systems that were uh, about oppression and domination. Uh, So we do have some examples where Black people or uh, communities of color or discriminated communities did sort of exit and say, you know, we're going to do our own thing, because we are not really interested in being oppressed within this predominantly an oppressive white thing. But sometimes those things got stamped out. So like, if we consider like the Red Summer and Black Wall Street, like a Black-led system was really violently hurt by the overarching white system. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be an anti-racist effort to dramatically and radically change the systems that exist in in order for racism to be affected well enough. Uh, Derek Bell, a critical race theorist who's incredibly renowned, uh, posits that racism is permanent. It's always going to exist in some way. And I think that that is true. I think it's been around for so long that it's always going to be somewhere. Uh, If we have any chemists in the, in the chat, uh, that could be like a half-life like mm-hmm. a element is always going to exist. It's just going to exist less and less and less and less and less and smaller and smaller amounts. So we owe it to the people who have done this work for so long to continue it to the people who experience, uh, these social ills right now, every single day, we owe it to them to lessen that burden, even if it may never be completely absolved.
0: Mm. Yes. And, Beautifully put about the idea that, I mean, uh, and sharing, sharing his work of that it's racism is always going to be around. Uh, I think that is, that's something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Uh, But it's a reality that a lot of people need to sit in, uh, because that means that there's still work to be done. Like you said, the, I love the, I, I do have a bit of a science background, so I appreciate the chemistry nod. Thank you. Uh, shout out to you. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, that I, that, that concept that with each generation, ideally racism gets a little bit less and a little bit less, right. And with each, with each, with each, uh, generation of, of, of new people who are passionate about it and, 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 and new parents and new, and also the, uh, the, the, the dying off of older generations and older ideals. Ideally it is getting better, but that doesn't mean that we just like sit around and wait for that to happen. Mm-hmm. to a place where now it's like, I think we've had racism to a comfortable, like it's radiation around Chernobyl. I think the rate, the racism lay of a level around here. I think it feels pretty good. I think it's safe to come back, right? Like that's not, that's not the way it is. Um, it, it takes work. Yes. Time is a component of work, um, but, it is not the only component. And so individual citizens standing around saying, well, I'm not racist, so I'm not part of the problem, hands up, is is, is kind of the equivalent of not picking up a piece of trash that's in front of you just because it wasn't yours, right? Like this is our community. This is our globe, our country or whatever, right? And, and uh, while we continue to live with I statements and not we or our statements – we're not moving forward fast enough, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and so I think you know as I think about the the anti racist uh, and and I, I, I again appreciate the education uh, on the front end of that question as well, uh, and and yeah, it turns it is it is a huge buzzword right now, so I'm seeing it just a lot more, uh, and, uh, and and so that's that's what's got me confused, and so thank you for the clarification, um, but with the uh, with the rise of it. I'd be curious to hear, you know, you have the capacity to impact in many ways in the work that you do. Uh, right. You're going to you're going to write a dissertation that's going to be shared amongst a whole bunch of individuals and it's going to be impressive work. And it's let's go. Here we go. Um, <laughs> and right. And and that's going to be really beautiful and and, and awesome. That's going to impact those circles. You also have the capacity to, uh, like you mentioned earlier, when you were when you were in college to strap those boots on, make a sign, get out to a protest. Right. You also have the capacity to have one on one moments with friends and, and whatnot. It is very possible for anti-racist work to consume every single moment of every single day for you. We talked a little bit about it in some burnout moments earlier, right? How that's, that's sometimes how it is because the work is so heavy and so important, but also so deeply personal. That's a tough triangle of things. And so I'd be curious for you uh, to hear about, for you in doing this work, how have you um how have you segmented your time because it is possible for you to burn out every single day, right? Like responding to people on Facebook um, and going out to this protest and and, and and going here and then getting on the hotline and trying to call senators and then go right There's so many. And then, oh, by the way, I got to write this dissertation right, real quick. It's possible for you to completely burn out. How have you decided where you best serve? Because mm-hmm. we can't be everything. Right. As we as we try to become better, uh, as we try to become more uh, and, and uh, allies, advocates, uh, anti-racist and whatnot, there sometimes is a pressure to be, well, I got to do all the things. How have you uh, how have you kind of set up your time so that you are set up for longevity, not just a quick burst of fury?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so I typically will think about that using two sort of references. One is like academic based and one is nerd based. So the first one is a quote from James Baldwin and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, um, to be black and relatively conscious in America is to be in a constant state of rage. And I think that that is true because there's so much that is unfair I think a lot of us as humans want to live in a world where if you work hard, you do well and where we treat people how they deserve to be treated, but we don't live in that world and we never have. And that can be shaking and that can really make you question your sense of who you are and how the world works and what is fair and what isn't and like how we keep going with all of this. Uh, And I think that there are, there are glimmers in which it seems like it's going to get better or be better. And the road to that has been quite slow Uh, sometimes even goes backwards. But the nerd reference inside of uh, my noggin right now is a Marvel Universe Avengers reference uh, from the Hulk, where he Mm -hmm. says, uh, that's my secret, I'm always angry. Uh, If you're familiar with Marvel, uh, the Bruce Banner is having, uh, you know, transitions into the Hulk, and someone asks him, like, how do you do that so fast? I thought you had to be angry. And he says, that's my secret, I'm always angry. He always has the ability to Hulk out, but he doesn't if he doesn't want to. Uh, And that took time for him to develop that ability. And so I think that way with myself as well, in that I'm always angry about racism. I'm always angry about sexism and misogyny and homophobia and transphobia, but I can't allow that to consume me at all times because then I would do nothing. I would just be enraged all the time. Uh, So it's always back there. It's always tinkering around the back of my head, but it doesn't always come up all the time. probably daily given the work that I do. Uh, And part of me, most of me is very much the kind of person that says like, burn it all down, throw the whole society away. It's always (laughs) been trash and we just need something else. But then the other part of me that is more maybe realistic, for lack of a better word, thinks like, all right, we do need like some level of structure to keep society from crumbling, even if I would like to see it crumble a little bit. So where's the middle ground? How are we going to? radically reimagine the way that our society functions to best serve all of us in an equitable fashion that doesn't say give everyone the same but says instead give everyone what they need to succeed even if that's not the same mm-hmm. uh, but given the work that I do I do have to take time to think like do I need to step away yes the work that I do is important but I am important too and if I'm saying that like, black lives matter and that black people should take time for themselves and their healing. I'm also a black person whose life matters, who needs to take time for their rest and their healing. And I can't pour from an empty cup. Uh, It's easier to say right now than it is for me to actually step back in my actual life once I like close this computer. Uh, But (laughs) that would be the ideal scenario in which we find some sort of balance between the, anger of the way that the world works the peace of understanding that we can change it it's going to take time and the balance between burn it all down and change it sustainably there's a balance between that yeah i just haven't arrived at it yet and i don't think as a a society we've come to a consensus on how we're going to arrive at that either but uh not to quote you to death but i love (laughs)
0: quote
1: um has one where he says uh Power concedes nothing without demand. It never has and it never will. Uh, So I think about that a lot too when people uh, say things like, oh, well, I just wish we could go back to when racism wasn't such a big deal. It always was. Uh, People were just not as up in arms about it, maybe because uh, society was a little bit different. There was less social polarization. But we don't live in that time. And there has always been tension. It just kind of felt like a peaceful tension for some people while mm. other people were suffering. And now that suffering is more visible than it has been. And maybe that's because phones and cameras and maybe it's just because people are opening their eyes to it more. Uh, but I think on the other side of this can come some really transformative change as long as that change is maintained and protected.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Victoria, I think another piece of it is also is this pandemic, right? Like, I mean, the, the quickest way to see things differently is to break a pattern, right? And and a lot of people have their patterns broken with this pandemic. And so people had more time to be, you know, they're working from home and so their TVs are on or they're, you know, they're checking their social media even more uh, and stuff like that, right? Like I... I uh, part of my business is, you know, in the marketing aspect is when should I post on social media? And there used to be like these specific times that people were supposed to post. And now you can kind of post almost whenever, and you're going to get very similar engagement. Um, mm-hmm. and that just speaks to, I think a little bit of what helped amplify, um, uh, the atrocities of Amard Arbery, Breonna, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and 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 so many others, uh, and, and so I think that 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 as an, in a twisted way helped bring more people into a conversation that's been happening for centuries. Uh, mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think unfortunately, I'm sorry. Please. I think
1: unfortunately, their scenarios has also been like perfect victim scenarios of like, they were just living their lives. They weren't doing anything wrong. They Mm -hmm. weren't criminals. Um, But also if someone is doing something wrong or is a criminal or is not a perfect person, that doesn't mean that they should be publicly or privately murdered for that situation. Uh, Today I'm thinking specifically about uh, Elijah McClain and the transcripts around his murder came out yesterday. And I was very shook by it because he's, pleading with these people to not hurt him and they're not listening. And I just think that that level of awareness is something that we haven't seen previously because there was this tendency to not humanize the victims um, or the people that were wrongly murdered or hurt. Um, I also think that people aren't, aren't, Shying away from the conversation now, like they may have previously. So, historically, I've heard rhetoric around, like, well, racism's not as bad as it used to be, or like, I don't notice it. But then, when people take a look at, like, who's dying of COVID, uh, yeah. who's most likely to experience poverty, and not most likely, but like, most likely given population size, disproportionately experiencing. Uh, homelessness, or hunger, or incarceration, or longer prison sentences, who's dying of maternal mortality, whose life expectancies are shorter, who's going to college, all of those sorts of things I think are compounding on this moment and bringing a lot of people together to say like, hey, racism is in every single one of these outcomes of human success in America. So like, you can't say that it's not real anymore, that you're not seeing it, because it's not just about whether or not someone can eat at a lunch counter or whether or not someone is getting bullied. It's about these like huge overarching systems. And you can't say that it's not real if you're presented with the concrete evidence that it is. Some people don't care and will not read the articles that have the concrete evidence in it. But I think as more people have access and interest in it, that's becoming more popular.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you mentioned the uh, Elijah McClain uh, tapes that came out, and they are uh, truly horrifying, uh, devastating mm-hmm. to, uh, to to transcripts to read, uh, for sure. And I mean, just, and also earlier earlier this week, right? Angelo Quinto um, out in California was kneeled on for five something minutes and killed by police, uh, and uh, who was going through a mental health episode, you know, very similar, uh, just like Elijah McClain was going through something with mental health. And it's just, it, it is. Uh, it's not, we're not getting it quick enough. Um, and there's so much work to be done. Uh, and, uh, and to hear you speak about it so eloquently, I'm just, it's such a gift to have you on this show and, and for what you're teaching me, I have one last question for you, uh, around this and, uh, Um, I'm wondering since the work that you do, if I'm allowed to ask this question, if not, you can feel free to push back on me because I know uh, it is never uh, the oppressed job to teach the non-impressed about why their oppression should matter to them. Um, But I guess a question that I have for you is we started this conversation around anti-racism, allyship uh, and whatnot uh, around and talking about your family with the concept of identity right? And I know a lot of the work that you do is empowering others to analyze their identity expression and whatnot. What is something that listeners can do to just start that work, right? If they have not yet or, to, or to, 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 to take a move, what's something that we can try this week uh, to do a little bit more in that direction?
1: So I think what I really enjoy learning about the most is Socialization. So the process by which we come to understand who we are, what our identity is, what the identities are of the people around us and where we fit in within a social world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I recommend that people think really deeply about how they came to be the kind of person that they are. And so this is probably on my mind because I just submitted a paper at midnight last night about uh, <laughs> black women in colleges, social performance and uh racial performance authenticity and whether or not uh, or rather to the extent that code switching uh, impacts the longitudinal performance of racial identity. So like, are you speaking, acting, dressing, behaving in the same way throughout social experiences? So like, are you showing up the same way at, I don't know. Sigep formal, as you are at like a black student union meeting, are would that be consistent throughout a bunch of different experiences? Uh, and so the reason why sometimes it's not is because socialization, because we are conditioned to behave certain ways with certain people, and that's not something we always have to think about. Because typically, like Malcolm Gladwell in the ten thousand hour rule, once you've put in your practice of doing that thing it just becomes a part of your subconscious. Like you do it, but you don't necessarily have to think about it. And so I challenge people to think more deeply about what they've been socialized to do or think or speak like or dress like or act like or whatever, and whether or not that's serving them. Are you doing things to fragment parts of your identity or to change things about yourself to make you more likable, more approachable, more relatable? And is that a disservice to who you really are? And can you step more into being authentic in a way that feels good for you that you don't have to put effort towards. Um, I think that that's been really huge for me is understanding that like, I don't have to be perfect all the time. I don't have to change things about things about myself to be more likable. And if someone makes me feel that way, like I do have to change that. then that person's not my friend and maybe doing an inventory about who makes you feel that way and who doesn't.
0: Bars friend. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Friend. Uh, Victoria, it's been so dope getting to know you. Uh, I cannot thank you uh, for the time that you have taken uh, with me, with with everybody listening, uh, and just, just sharing just sharing a little bit of your brilliance, right? Sharing your story. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I thank you so much for coming on Diner Talks and hanging out in the diner with me for a minute. Felt like we were back in New York for a hot second. Pass the pancakes and the syrup. French toast for you, of course. But... <laughs>
1: I might take a drive down to the diner on the corner and get some baklava this afternoon. That sounds like a good uh, Friday night treat.
0: Sounds like a great, a great plan. Post about it on Instagram. I want to double tap that. the instagram post anyway so my friends uh if you want to learn more about victoria you can check her out at victoria alexander.com uh she's also uh crushing it on instagram uh and it's uh, victoria alexander victoria spelled all the way out but then a l x n d r uh, on instagram uh she posts a lot of meaningful content there as well uh and some funny stuff too all that but uh victoria thank you so much for hanging out in the diner with me today.
1: Thanks so much for having me, James.
0: Hell yeah, my friend. Hell yeah. So, <clears throat> my friends, thank you for coming to this episode of Diner Talks with James. I hope that you will check it out. Actually, if you heard this, if you're listening to this right now, you've already checked it out. That's the way podcasts work. This is the end of the episode. Anyway, I'm really excited that you were here, my friends. We had a lot of really powerful conversations today that I know they made me think. I hope they made you think. Uh, and shout out again to Victoria for giving us the gift of making us think today. And my friends, let us remind ourselves as we go forth into our days that we don't have to engage in small talk, my friends. We can punch it in the face. And the difference between small talk and meaningful conversations is often just a better question. So thank you so much for being here today, y'all. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. (laughs) (laughs) if you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button that would be dope and also if you could leave a review on iTunes well (laughs) come on now you're going to make me blush (laughs) also if you want to be a part of the action we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next also While we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.